0: Over the last decade, nations around the globe have made cyber weapons an integral component of their tactical toolkit. While the use of cyber weapons to date has emphasized information gathering, vandalism, disruption or influence, cyber warfare has the potential to cross the threshold into armed conflict. A disabling cyber attack on a country's electrical grid could escalate into traditional warfare. This reality demands a diplomatic strategy. As militaries continue to build up their cyber offenses, we need agreements to exercise restraint in their use, particularly during peacetime. We also need formal and informal channels for dialogue to build trust and reduce the risk of miscalculation or errors in attribution in the event of a serious cyber attack that appears to come from an adversarial nation. Welcome to another episode of Sound Discussion. My name is Bruce McConnell and today we are joined by Ambassador Timo Koster, a career diplomat at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ambassador-at-Large for Security Policy and Cyber. Ambassador Koster, welcome to Sound Discussions. Thank you. Ambassador Koster joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Kingdom of the Netherlands after earning a law degree at the University of Amsterdam. His service spans nearly three decades, including diplomatic posts in Nairobi, London and Athens, where he served as deputy ambassador. Before taking up his current cyber role, he served as director for defense policy and capabilities on the NATO international staff in Brussels. He is a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Timo, I want to start by learning more about your current role as ambassador at large for security policy and cyber. Cyber diplomacy is still a pretty new concept, one that most people are not too familiar with. Can you tell us about your post and the growing area of cyber diplomacy and how you got into this? Yes, Bruce. Well,
1: first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a great opportunity to be here and uh, explain these kind of things. Nowadays, um, we have to understand better what goes on in the digital world. We have to understand the connections between what goes on on the internet and in the real world. And uh, so we're adapting our diplomatic practices, our our embassies and the roles that we have for our diplomats to make sure that we're uh, equipped for uh, today's and tomorrow's world. Uh, That means that we have to be able to negotiate uh, with other countries on these kind of issues, that we have to understand the dynamics in conflicts and that we have to uh, be sure that we have the right people on uh, on our personnel to deal with this.
0: So, uh, the Netherlands, of course, has a long history in uh, advocating for international law and commerce. So, uh, does this uh, does this thrust from the ministry these days uh, kind of build on that tradition? Yes, absolutely.
1: We have a, a long-standing tradition in the Netherlands to promote international an international rules-based order. We're one of the very few countries in the world that actually has this enshrined in the constitution as a task for the states to promote international rules-based order. Um, cyberspace, of course, is a new domain, a new area where things work slightly different than what we're used to. We, say, we always say that international law applies in cyberspace. But we don't know exactly how yet and we're in the process of understanding that and and figuring that out between ourselves within the government but also with other governments.
0: So you came to this position after serving at NATO where your focus was not primarily on cyber security matters but cover all aspects of NATO's force structure and doctrine. How did that experience inform and help you in going into this job?
1: Yes, as a matter of fact, at NATO I was I, I had uh, responsibility for all other domains except cyber, so that was an interesting uh, uh, switch for me. I think what I've learned at NATO is first of all that um, first of all that you learn to think strategically, to see the bigger picture, to understand what the the common interests are of, of 30 different nations. Uh, cyber clearly is, is not confined to national borders. It's a, it's a shared security interest and it's something that we have to tackle together. And it's also interlinked with other, um, other parts of, of conflict. Uh, nowadays, we talk about hybrid warfare, um, which in its current form might sound fairly new, but, but is really not because we've, we've known different uh, uh, strategies and tactics over the ages. Um, but we have to understand how cyber and a cyber component of a conflict interacts with, let's say, the more conventional domains, and, and how we build a strategy, not just to, to recognize what a hybrid campaign is, but also to, to counter that pressure with an integrated uh, uh, strategy.
0: So that's something that I picked up at NATO that I bring to this current role. And, and also, as you say, uh, you brought the experience of dealing with 30 30- fairly diverse countries. So these are all fairly well-developed European countries, but the, particularly in cyber, the capacity issues of understanding the impact vary widely. So, you know, we, we read these stories about uh, horrible events that are gonna happen. The world is gonna come to an end because of a cyber attack, and yet it's, uh, it hasn't happened. And I think there's some weariness with these horror stories. Uh, and yet there is a real threat. So, what's your experience in terms of raising the importance of cyber diplomacy and, and the stakes that are involved? What's working for you in doing that? First of all, we, by now we
1: all understand that the internet does not just present opportunities, um, which of course is very important. It, it presents opportunities in terms of freedom of speech, of promotion of human rights, intellectual discourse, but it also ho- holds risks and dangers, which span from uh, uh, crime, uh, theft, uh, coercion and, and the kind of things that states do to each other. In general, people understand that it's not just all a rosy picture and that there's also a dark side to it. But we, as a government, have to understand is first of all how we, uh, what kind of uh, threats we have to protect ourselves and and the population from, uh, how we can actually make sure that we function through an attack, and that we continue to be able to to function as a government, and also we have to make sure that we understand how we interact with other players because the the one thing that is different from the internet from the the uh, let's say the. the the real world is that the internet is not owned by the government. The government owns the open road, so the government can decide where to put the traffic lights. The internet is not owned by the government, so if you want to decide where to put the traffic lights, you have to interact with the other stakeholders, so governments, uh, companies, NGOs, civil society, everyone has a say in this, and that that makes it for us a a rather complicated uh, matter compared to other areas.
0: Well, particularly in the area of security, because we traditionally rely on governments uh, to do security, and we rely on governments to exercise the legitimate use of violence. And so how does that work? How how do the conversations uh, at NATO, for example, or in your conversations uh, go when you start realizing that you have to rely on the private sector to do some things that are in the past have been really governmental functions.
1: Yeah, so, so that's difficult for individual governments and certainly for a collective organization like, like NATO where you always have to deal with uh, differences of opinion and, and a sort of an understanding that develops over time. I think uh, if you take the example of NATO, in, initially we thought this was something for individual countries to deal with individual governments then we realized that we had to protect our own infrastructure which means the the computer systems of nato as an organization and our command and control facilities etc and then after a while we started to realize that we also needed to protect critical infrastructure in each country because if the power grid doesn't function anymore you cannot uh, function through a crisis and you cannot defend the country. So it's sort of uh, something that is still intellectual under development, strategically under development. And now we're moving to a point where we say, okay, it may be the case that defense only is not enough and that we have to move to offensive scenarios where we can actually uh, bring about certain effects even before we get attacked by others.
0: Right, right. We have the uh, U.S. doctrine now of persistent engagement in which things that you know, look kind of offensive are being done for defensive purposes. It's quite controversial, of course, but it, it displays and illustrates how the boundaries in cyber are, are messy and not what we're used to in the conventional world.
1: That's true, and the Netherlands has declared that we have developed and are able to deploy offensive cyber cap- capacities as well. We have also put those cyber capabilities at the... Uh, disposal of NATO commanders, but what, what the US is developing at this moment, of course, is one step further. We don't necessarily approve or disapprove of it, but we do recognize that we need to work with the US government to make sure that we understand how they operate this, that we have to make them understand that we don't want them to operate it and in the process violate our sovereignty or sovereignty of other countries. So we have to make sure that we understand how they do it and they understand how we want them to do it. We have to make sure that we don't trigger escalation uh, or, or an arms race, which is not not uh, in anyone's interest. And we have to make sure that um, we as a, a country know what's going on, on on our on our
0: territory and on our turf. My own opinion is we're losing the fight against the arms race at the moment. I mean, part of the work which we'll talk about later regarding uh, norms of behavior is an attempt to get that runaway competition in under some management. But before we get to that, I, I wanted to pick up on your, a point that you made when you were at the uh, Atlantic Council uh, this spring when you said that, quote, soft tools are not enough to influence state behavior and that effective deterrence must quote both overtly and covertly really act to malicious behavior by attribution and naming and shaming. So how effective do you think that naming and shaming part is and how does it play into the overall playbook of deterrence? So as a national government we've
1: gone through a process of, of thinking about these things uh, and we have realized that The resilience that I just talked about, protecting your own systems, is not enough to get others to do what we would like them to do. Discussing norms and standards is, on a voluntary basis, probably not not enough, and we have developed over time a conviction that we need to have stronger uh, tools to influence the decisions of other nations and and dissuade them from uh, malicious acts. We have over time realized that there's more needed so and and we were not the only ones if you look at Europe after the the attack on the OPCW last year a hack performed by Russian uh, agents it's surprising how fast the European Union came to a a sanctions regime to, to basically act against cyber attacks so over time, we've realized that the soft tools of, of convincing and, and voluntary norms is not, not enough. You have to be able to dissuade, to uh, even deter what uh, some people would say. It's not easy, and if your question is, how effective is it? Well, none of the tools are effective by themselves. I think we will only be successful in influencing the behavior of, of other states if we have the full range, that full continuum of, uh, of tools at our disposal, that we can actually operate in a, in a cohesive way, not just within our own government, but between governments and between allies. And only then we have a chance of influencing the behavior of, of uh, states that uh, mean to do harm. But are we successful, are we fully successful now? No, we're not, we're still working on it.
0: So, uh, let's talk about one of the projects which the Foreign Ministry was very involved with. It launched and now supports, along with the governments of France and Singapore, the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, which is developing norms and processes to reduce the risk from the use of cyber weapons. As the Commission comes to the end of its three-year term, how would you say it is doing and what's next? That's, that's an important question. Well, first of all, um, working on norms
1: and having a platform where, like I said, we're not just governments sit and talk together, but also other stakeholders. So ranging from the big tech companies and, and human rights NGOs, et cetera, is an important effort that we supported from, uh, from the get-go. We had basically three areas that we wanted to support. One was this development of norms, Secondly was capacity building, so helping nations that are not as well developed in these areas to, to develop an understanding uh, uh, what these challenges are. And thirdly, human rights. So in the, the norms field, we have instituted the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. In uh, capacity building, we have instituted the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, and in the human rights field, we have uh, instituted the, the Freedom Online Coalition. Now, the Global Commission uh, on Stability of Cyberspace is coming to its end of the three-year mandate. The 12th of November will be the day that um, the commission will present its report in Paris, actually to the foreign ministers of uh, Netherlands, France and Singapore. And I think it's an important report uh, in a sense that it first uh, consolidates uh, the norms that have been developed over the years by different groups. Um, So it's an important um, body of work that uh, others will be able to draw upon. Secondly, I think it gives some, some clear direction to how these norms should be implemented how they should be monitored and how they should be promoted in the future. And I think in that sense it's a a very timely report because uh, under the United Nations there's two processes underway or getting underway now to to discuss these norms. So it's a very important input that uh, nations will be able to draw upon as they develop that um, discussion about uh, uh, behaviour of states in, in cyberspace.
0: So one of the areas which is getting pretty interesting I think in this whole question of uh, how to make the internet safe for everybody is uh, on the one hand the need to have governments more involved and the military is more involved and at the same time a recognition that uh, it's important to promote human rights and, uh, and freedom and there's in d- democracies there's a recognized tension uh, between the role of governments and the role of the of the people mm-hmm. uh, in maintaining democracy if you will so um, do you feel like uh, that balance of democracy is is somehow uh, shifting or is uh, called into question or threatened in some way at all by the evolving role of governments in cyberspace
1: well this this is the most difficult question there is and and, and, and a key question um, and I would say it's, um, it, it's a moving target. It's difficult to say whether at this very point, human rights are compromised um, by individual governments. I think the, the discussions we have in, in the UN about what nations are uh, allowed to do in cyberspace, what governments are allowed to do, it's, it's a very fundamental question that touches upon the relationship between the state and the citizen. So the fundamental question about uh, the relationship between state and the individual citizen is on the table here. It's a question whether uh, the state is allowed to interfere with the freedoms that uh, an uh, an individual has in the real world, but now also uh, on the internet. So we in the Netherlands believe that the the human rights that uh, people enjoy in the real world do also apply on the internet. The tension that you see um, in these discussions between the various groups of nations is that some uh, nations, uh, some governments find it acceptable to limit the freedom that people have on the internet, that they can control what people read, that they control what people actually expresses their opinion on the internet. And that, that gives real tensions, and it's not easy to, to, to marry those different positions.
0: Absolutely. I mean, with all uh, freedoms come responsibility. And so uh, as we're seeing uh, with hate speech in in America, um, there's a problem with the propagation of rumors and fake news and fake news stories and things that have much more uptake uh, by regular citizens than than the truth. Uh, They're more exciting or for whatever reason. And so this traditional balance between government hands-off in terms of mass communications for example is starting to uh, hit even in america which is in some ways the more extreme of these and i think this is a tough road to find our way down in the future and in authoritarian states it's much easier for them they can just act uh, arbitrarily to a certain extent we don't have that in democracies thank god
1: yeah but but so so now you talk about the tension between hate speech on the one hand and the truth on the other hand. And here's a very difficult dilemma for a government. Of course, we don't want to condone hate speech. We don't want uh, racism or terrorist ideas to be promulgated through the internet. On the other hand, as a government, we don't want to be the, uh, the institution that decides what is true or what is not true. It's not a crime to say something that is not true. And we don't want, I'm from the foreign ministry, we don't want to be the ministry of the truth. There's actually other countries where media and the truth are strongly controlled and that's exactly what we don't want to do. So how do we find that balance between on the one hand not allowing just anything to be aired through the internet and and, uh, people Promoting crime or terrorism or racism through the internet, but on the other hand not limit people too much on the one hand not uh, Allowing elections to be influenced by a foreign power on the other hand not deciding what is what is right? Or what is true and what is not true?
0: and so in some cases we governments have left these decisions to companies to make, Uh, and you find that the big global platforms are in a quasi-judicial role of deciding based on their terms of service, and they're under a lot of pressure to moderate the content. We'll be talking about this more at our workshop later on today. Yeah, and and on the one hand, I think
1: it's a good thing that companies like Facebook take their responsibility and not just say, we are just a platform and you can do whatever you want so it's a good thing that for instance in Facebook there's a lot of people looking at what is and is not acceptable but on the other hand yes it is controversial to leave that to the private sector to decide what you can and cannot do and it creates a sort of an arbitrary gray zone which we have difficulty with dealing with but the reality is that that, like I said the internet is not owned by the government so we have to work together with these other parties and these other stakeholders to, to, to make it work, and it will never be perfect, but I think we, we are, in a way, we're better off than we are, let's
0: say, five or 10 years ago. I think you're right. I think we're making progress, but lots of work still to be done. We've just scratched the surface of some of the issues uh, here today, but as always, it's a delight uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was uh, a great pleasure and a great honor. Thanks a lot.
0: Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud and Apple Podcast under the name of East West Institute where you can listen, follow and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you for listening.